Chris, like uh, many, I traveled a little bit for Thanksgiving. You were on a plane and everything. Yeah, yeah. I went to Texas, see family. We go to my wife's side of the family. It's out in West Texas. So we, we will fly into the booming metropolis of Lubbock, Texas, home of Texas Tech University. Good-sized town. That's a big college, but the airport is not particularly large. And so my in-laws are dropping us off, so we don't have to park or any of that. So we walked in the doors of the airport. I turned to look at TSA. Not a soul. There are eight TSA workers staring at us. More TSA workers than family members. It took us longer to wind through the little snake uh, area there to get to the TSA agents than it did to actually get through security. I I will tell you, I will take that scenario every day. Uh, of sitting around the gate with too much time versus, you know, the alternate scenario, I guess. But um, also, Lubbock, Texas, the still the only TSA uh, area that has a boot scraper. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 359. Chris Boyer, Reed Smith. I always get tagged going through TSA. My son gets it every time because apparently, side tip here, maybe this could be my recommendation. I don't know. This is a freebie. If you have Birkenstocks, the double buckle will trigger it, is what TSA told my son. Yeah, so if you just got the single strap, you're, you're fine. Or if you're wearing Crocs, you're all in. Travel tips. Travel tips. That's uh, what you're That's why for. you tune in um, to the Touchpoint yeah. podcast. Well, thanks, everybody, for, for listening. I know this is a busy time of year. We certainly appreciate the support. I hope everybody uh, had a good Thanksgiving. Hope you got good, uh, fun Christmas plans coming up, New Year's even, but love this time of year. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Speaking of this time of year, we'll mention the, the website, touchpoint.health. You can go over there, sign up for the TPS reports. An email comes out every Monday, five articles to jumpstart your week, hopefully a little value add. In addition, right now, you can also take a peek in there, and there's a link to our end-of-year survey. One, a uh, little voting, a uh, little voting to see who who wins. We'll give out some uh, hardware here at the end of the year, as they say. Also, just some feedback for us, you know, like it, don't like it, things like that. So would love for you to spend just a couple of minutes with that. You can also track us down on LinkedIn. Some of our most recent comments and posts there have to do with the survey, so you can find the link there as well. We'll pause here again, touchpoint.health. Go over there, sign up, click through, survey, all that kind of fun stuff, and we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. All right, here we go, Chris, today talking a little bit about digital transformation. This is obviously a topic we've probably touched on every episode, at least. Well, I don't know how we don't talk about this every episode, quite honestly. It's kind of an umbrella term to some extent that covers pretty much what the podcast is about. But I did have a chance to talk to Scott Becker here recently, and we talked a little bit about kind of the landscape of the industry and some things. And so I thought it might be interesting to kind of go back through to understand if we're really ready 
for digital transformation, not just what is digital transformation. When we talk about digital transformation, I mean, that could be as simple as automating a manual process to be digital. But what we're talking about here is some radical digital transformation to meet the expectations of the modern healthcare consumer, to meet the expectations of our employees. Digital transformation could be one of those terms that you could apply to small or large things. We're talking about big transformational efforts here. I'm excited to kind of dive into it a little bit here because we found some good uh, articles that we can use as a foundation for our thoughts here. The first actually comes from the advisory board, and it's entitled, aptly enough, Healthcare needs a digital transformation. Is it ready? And this was just recently published by the advisory board. So let's start with that, Reed. Let's jump into this. Well, again, they set the stage a little bit with with a couple of takeaways that I'm not sure uh, are going to be news to anybody listening. But first and foremost, that healthcare is behind nearly all the other industries as it relates to the topic of digital transformation. Again, call back to COVID. COVID-19 created an opening, they say, for change that really the digital care and how care is delivered as a whole, I would say, has changed and, and the industry is is much more open and has a much more uh, ability to kind of go down this path of other business models, if you will. Some of the points that they bring forward here, they position it in a way that I'm not sure I would exactly use these words, but they said that the modern healthcare purchaser, so I don't use that term when I talk about our digital oh. consumers and healthcare, but the purchaser have now seen how convenient and cost-effective healthcare can be. Have they? I, yeah, I know, exactly. That's the question. But they'll continue to uh, shop for providers and partners that excel digitally. Purchases include both consumers, of which 65% intend to continue to use telehealth after the pandemic is over, according to a survey they did, but also employers. 90% of which say their increased focus on virtual medicine is important since the pandemic. So we're getting a double play here, right, of, uh, I guess, with the consumer and the employer all expecting now digital to be pervasive through the health system. Yeah, and further, kind of what I mentioned a minute ago, right, which is the kind of evolving uh, models of care. The pandemic really shone a light, if you will, on what what is possible and what people want and don't want. So they're talking here about legacy business models, but they double click on the idea of staffing and even, even how people pay. So they're saying here that more organizations are, are open to the idea of digital innovation as a solution for these growing challenges, right? That 82% of healthcare systems view virtual care companies as top competitors and nearly as high, uh, so 87% of you uh, um, other health systems as top competitors. So 82% think maybe it's kind of opened the door a little bit to like who really is the competitor and what, you know, what does the world look like and what are people looking for? By the way, investment dollars have flown into this too. And that's why we're seeing this huge rise, almost an explosion of digital health companies that are out there from therapeutics to just, you know, even administrative assistance, efficiency plays, uh, obviously AI is part of that. And it's all focusing on making sure that we can scale and be proactive and offer holistic care in the health system. But this is where the advisory board kind of takes a, an editorial turn, that they believe it's dangerous for industry leaders to view current trends in digital health investment and adoption as a victory in the pursuit of all of this care for patients. Because there's still three challenges that they feel stand out in the role of di that digital innovation can play. So let's talk about those three, Reed. First one is promoting health equity. So uh, in other words, how can digital health help uh, reduce disparities in, in care delivery and, in well, hopefully ultimately outcomes, they say in here. That's a real opportunity. With some of the things that we're talking about, geography becomes less of a barrier, for example, uh, or access, maybe. The second one they, they call out here is caring for an aging pop population. So technology, how can that potentially reduce the cost of care for baby boomers as they move into you know kind of the Medicare ages? It's a big one. Yeah, it, it is. And I think just their aptitude around technology is probably higher than most people think. And so I think there's an opportunity there. Uh, and then the last one they talk about here is advancing value-based care, which I know we talk a lot about in the industry, but uh, they say in here, what tools do clinicians and oper operational leaders need to succeed under risk-based payment models? 
these challenges are, are really profound and addressing these and, and other challenges really require a unique way for us to approach digital and digital transformation in health systems. And ultimately, the article puts forward that there are two requirements that are needed for any kind of digital transformation effort to be considered nowadays. So if you're listening in here, pull the car over to the side or you know, stop jogging on the treadmill and write these down. Here are the two requirements for digital transformation. In their design, they have to be scalable, holistic, and targeted at the most complex high-need patients. And in their adoption, they have to be widespread enough to be accessed by a large majority of patients. In a nutshell, that sounds pretty straightforward, but that also sounds like a big thing to to address here. Yeah, that you create something that's scalable and uh, from an adoption, we need everybody to use it. That that seems like a lot. Easy to write, hard to implement. (laughs) You know? Kind of as they round out this thought, they're talking here about the fact that it could reshape how we approach existing and emerging challenges to the business models that we that we see. So including the idea of health equity and uh, the aging population and the value-based care world. They say in here that ambition, like you just said, Chris, ambition is large uh, and the stakes are high. Yeah. This, this is an easy problem to solve for, but yet... You know, the barriers are many. A vast majority of organizations' incentives run counter to the goals of innovation players. Industry leaders looking to make healthcare more digitally enabled will be poor served by focusing narrowly on their own patients or just a simple slice of the patient care journey. And this runs a little counter to what you and I have been talking about, about starting small and scaling. In this particular case, they say that making healthcare truly digitally enabled will require changing the incentives that underlie industry dynamics altogether. Oh my gosh, suddenly this little thing becomes a big problem. And they go on to say this leaves adoption uh, of the highest uh, leveraged digital innovations limited to two groups that combining to its own care of a small share of patients. First, large progressive health systems with payer arms, which that it's not that it's uncommon, but that's not everybody, right? Or, or, or they say in here, significant revenue at risk have invested heavily because they reap outsized value from tools that reduce cost of care through you know, preventative intervention, et cetera, et cetera. That's an interesting group of people, right? That they're incentivized to do it. Yeah, the advisor board even says that this represents the upper echelon of health systems. So clearly they realize they're only talking to a small subsegment of the groups. Second group that can benefit from this are direct-to-consumer digital health providers that are eagerly seeking to steal market share from traditional providers. Think the Amazons, think Village MDs, think of you know all of these people that have really embraced digital health in a direct-to-consumer model. They can benefit from this much greater than health systems, which, Reed, when we talk about that, it does leave this huge gap of healthcare providers in the United States today that don't fit in those two buckets. It's the majority, right? Typically, the advisor board gives some good rational advice about how to really embrace digital transformation. And by the way, this article does that too. But in this particular case, they're kind of painting this picture of the majority of us are not ready for this. Unless you're really large or you're Amazon. Exactly. So we're not going to end on that as a a bad note. What we're going to do is right after this break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit about how you can actually look at it from a patient perspective side and you can actually leverage digital transformation to expand patient agency. And we're going to talk about that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Okay, Reed, what I just did was called The Bump, where I set it up before the commercial break of what we're going to talk about now. So here we are. After The Bump, we're going to be talking about how can we leverage digital transformation by really focusing in on patient and enabling patient agency or putting the patient in charge of their healthcare. This is an article that we found from a consulting group called DAMO, D-A-M-O Consulting. Found it to be really good. It has some good it's thought starters here, so we can use this as a way to kind of talk about it. The article is entitled Expanding Patient Agency in Healthcare Interactions. So let's get into it. First thing that they kind of get into is here that, you know, for patients interacting with a healthcare organization, historically, and probably even currently, I would say, lacks some sort of customization and personalization. So, you know, they're compelled to use the communication channels provided that we provide them. We have a certain level of constraint and kind of rules of engagement that you have to fall into. Really restricted, right? We're still talking with physicians, primary care physicians, who don't have expanded hours for people that might be working. I have had in the last two years conversations with urgent care departments that are closed on Saturdays. And I'm like, why are we doing this? Well, like things have changed, right? So let's talk about some of the constraints. They often include limited contact hours, like I just mentioned, but also limited ways to contact or communicate with that place of care, Mm -hmm. limits on the types of issues or topics that can be addressed. So certain things they could talk about and certain things they can't talk about through these channels. This is where forward-thinking and service-oriented health systems can get a one-up on this because they recognize, much like you probably do at Arden, the pivotal role of patient experience and satisfaction in your overall success. Patients, along with other stakeholders, like members and caregivers, benefit if you give them the power of choice, personalization, and control. This seems a little bit more positive here, Reed. Most commonly find ourselves as an industry still operating kind of what we started with there, right? It's the patient that have a lot of control over this. It's like we've given them some mechanisms and some levers they can push and pull, but that's pretty much it. Like they can't, you know, just decide they, they want to communicate in a different way or something like that. So I think hours of operation is an interesting one. I think you now with virtual care, that's that's allowed a lot more flexibility there, potentially. So again, I think some of the mechanisms in which we provide care are allowing us to now, you know, give, you said choice, right? And they talk in here about choice, personalization, and growth. But choice, you know, is is a big one. To that end, there are some healthcare organizations that really have pursued digital transformation as a way to improve care delivery, patient experience, and financial performance through cost savings and increased revenues. These strategies are now starting to include things like generative AI and other ways to kind of communicate with people in a style that they're used to, while really enabling or automating a lot of the back-end processes and, and tools that are there. And I know that you're kind of considering some of those solutions at your organization. We've made a pretty conscious effort to, you know, from a technology perspective at least, um, to try to create an ecosystem that... Uh, allows us to do more with less, you know, bring a lot of things together. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I think that'll always continue to be the focus of what we're doing is how do we make this easier for the consumer? And sometimes that allows us to continue down the path uh, that we were already on in using, you know, new feature functionality or something like that. Sometimes not like, like you got to solve differently or some of it's just messaging or the way that you do things, right? It's not about technology per se sometimes. So they actually indicate that there are th- key factors that can significantly impact patient satisfaction when doing digital transformation at provider organizations. Let's spend the, the rest of our time here getting into each one of these. So the first one talking about choice, you know, empowering patients, they say, by design and developing tools that increase their options. But as they talk about choice, they talk about, you know, offering patients choices is pivotal to enhancing their experience. I would say that's true broadly. Patients should be free to select their healthcare provider and care team, learn about the treatment plans, you know, et cetera. 
I think a really interesting call out in here, though, is that they say that the foundation for patient choice is patient education. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. Uh, we maybe have glossed or, or kind of that's lost its luster a little bit, patient education. But it says by leveraging and providing digital education technology that delivers curated, clinically validated information about their condition, their diagnoses, medications, lifestyle choices, et cetera. Patients then can become more aware about the options uh, available to them and the appropriate options available to them. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important thing here, right? Uh, we can go into the route of like giving them all the choices to choose the right provider as freely and openly as they want, but they have to have that context. And I think the patient education provides that context because making healthcare decisions should not be 100% in the arms of the patient, per se. You do need guidance to get there. And that's where tools, digital health tools, digital therapeutic tools, generative AI, all of these things, they're really good places here where we can actually start to allow patients to feel they're in the driver's seat and making those choices, but also kind of gently nudging them to the right information for them to make the right choices. And they go on to talk, and we won't belabor some of these points, but around technology, right? Like generative AI can give people access to a lot more information, for example. But patient education integrated with other health data so that providers can see the information their their patients have accessed and to give further guidance is kind of interesting, right? I don't know that we're, we're doing a lot of that. You know, I think that's that participatory piece, right? It's just not one way. It's like, you know, you're doing a bunch of research out here, then you come in and, you know, it's completely, it's like whiplash, you know, when you're talking to a provider or something like that. Exactly. So. Well, very much related to it. The second factor they say that you should look at when you're adopting digital transformation is personalization. Anything you can do to personalize the journey, be it the patient or even the employee in particular cases, right? We do know, and you even said this in the interview coming up, right, that each patient is different and has unique needs. You can use technology leveraging personalized data, like their EHR records and data analytics platforms, et cetera, to personalize a treatment plan. And then you could tailor those experiences with generative AI solutions, virtual health assistants, whatever, to really supplement all the things between one choice to another choice to another part of the journey, so to speak. Example they give here, if a patient asks about a medication, virtual health assistants can relay information based on their medical history, including their diagnosis, and contextualize it with information about the medication and allergies and things like that. I think that's a big, important thing to think about, right? And this is where you can see really interesting use cases of digital transformation. And I think this is the one that's going to take the biggest leap forward over time is the personalization around the experience or the journey. Because again, you you had to just kind of fall into the stream that, that we provided you, kind of much to some of the points of the first one. And I think that's where some of the generative AI pieces come in, some of the health assistant type applications should be really interesting. So the last one kind of builds on this this theme and it's uh, around granting control to the patient. Interesting, right? Like I don't know that we really want to give up quote unquote control, right? So this this <laughs> sounds scary when you first say mm-hmm. it. But healthcare organizations they say are finding ways to give patients more control over their journey and how they interact with the providers and staff, tools, etc. You know, some of the self-care management programs, chatbots, apps, digital tools, there's some telemedicine services. I think even inside of EHRs or portals, there's, you know, it's things as simple as like a checklist down to more of a guided type journey where people can kind of go through and participate as they see fit. It's saying here that by being active participants, patients gain a sense of control. And I think that is an interesting idea. You want participatory, I guess, attitudes from folks, right? I think that's how you're going to get adherence in a lot of cases. And so I think that is an interesting way to kind of view this is like the more they participate in the process, the more likely the outcomes are going to be better, I would guess. Yeah. And we're not Pollyannish here and thinking that this is going to be the magic silver bullet that's going to take care of everything here, right? There still is, with certain patients, a reluctance to be an active participant in their care. But there's a fair number, though, we're seeing in all the data that says we have this growing class of digital health consumers that just very much want that, 
right? They want to be able to refill their medication or switch doctors or make decisions, right, as they go through their care experience. And so I think it's important. The article kind of wraps up by saying, this is why we're seeing this growth in roles related to patient experience, such as yours, right, Reed, the chief experience officer, the chief patient experience officer. That's going to be very important. And then uh, in addition, they kind of call out that there's also going to be a growing rise of the chief AI officer that's going to be there as well, because they feel that that underlying technology is going to be so transformative, to coin a term, within our space, that you're going to need people dedicated to that. The chief AI officer, that, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, idea. I don't know. I, you know to, do we just call him uh, Chow? For <laughs> but it, it is interesting because, you know, is this, you know, topically down the path of something like experience or more functional and, and will be have a staying power, right? Now, again, I'm not suggesting anybody's actually going to be called the chief AI officer necessarily. Right. But I do think, you know, as we look at trying to give people more uh, ownership of their health care and ask for participation, like all this, all this does make sense, right? And we got to think about ways that we create journeys and engage people that's much more amenable to what, what it is that they want, uh, all the while making sure that we're still the subject matter experts and leading them towards, you know, what's best for their health too. Ultimately, that's the underscore here. The more we give access or grant access, as this article says, to patients around making decisions around their care journey and also providing the relevant context around it, I think we're going to be able to start to take a bite of the apple that needs to be bitten around digital transformation for healthcare. This is a good segue, Reed, to the interview you recently had. Yeah, had a chance, uh, was I guess maybe a couple of months ago in Chicago for one of the Becker's healthcare uh, conferences and uh, was visiting with Scott Becker. He moderated a panel I was on and we're sharing some kind of ideas. And so he was nice enough to come on and we had a nice conversation just around some of these same topics. Are we ready? Right. And, and kind of where, you know, where, what he's seeing and hearing around the industry. So uh, without further ado, we'll take a quick break here and then be back with a conversation with Scott Becker. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right. I'm here with uh, Scott Becker. Appreciate you coming on and thanks for spending a little bit of time with us. Reed, thank you so much. A pleasure to get to visit with you today. And for those who maybe are not familiar, tell everybody a little bit about Becker's, both uh, from a publication standpoint, but also events, conferences, things like that that you guys have going. Sure. So Becker's Healthcare is a media company. We mostly digital online and then conferences and events. We've got several events a year, just not to just as an example, we were just had our health IT, digital health revenue cycle meeting where you were a speaker at, thank goodness. We've got a meeting coming up, our CEO meeting in November where George and Laura Bush are speaking as well as a great number of hospital leaders and, you know, in great fun. So it's really events and also online, digital and websites. And there's a whole history to it. I started it 30 plus years ago and now have a great, great team that really drives the the great, great majority of it. And it's really a pleasure and allows us to connect with just wonderful people throughout healthcare and throughout business. So just great, great fun. Well, you mentioned 30 plus years ago. It's funny with Chris Boyer, my co-host, and I just talked a week or so ago about the evolution of our space and kind of some of the things that have changed. And even before that, obviously, we've talked in a lot of episodes about generative AI, but AI more in general, some of the value-based care or different models of care that are coming, even shifting site of care into the home and some of those things. 
technology plays a role in this, certainly. But I think a big piece of that is people are still unsure exactly what that means. I've seen some of that with the privacy components with some of the Google or or whatever it may be uh, as of late. What are you seeing relative to as the industry evolves uh, as it relates to technology? What are you seeing that folks need to be starting to kind of pay attention to? So it's a very broad question, of course. On the technology side, how I think about it is there are things that will help us leverage better, whether it's physicians, nurses, administrative talent, all kinds of places, and so, so important, especially as this sort of hits a flywheel and gets better and better. You know, People all talk about the ideal situation being the physician, the nurse, the person, not having to look at their screen while they're talking to a patient and being able to pay more attention to the patient themselves, whoever is clinically in need. And sort of this movement towards multiple different, so many different threads. But one is the better ambient technology that gets it easier and easier for people to actually focus on the patient. The second thing is the kinds of technologies that start to triage better so Physicians, nurses, clinicians of all types can use their time better and not be so burnt out because they're doing so many different things. So we view those as two big pieces of this. And then, you know, the, the holy grail is that you see this in certain administrative areas. So, for example, artificial intelligence and revenue cycle, a situation where a health system might have 2,400 people doing revenue cycle of which retaining those 2,400 people is next to impossible. They're not high-wage jobs, a lot of them, and the turnover is incredible, is moving to a spot where AI can do more and more of the work. And so you don't need 2,400 people that don't want to be there anyways, but you got 1,600 doing better and better work, higher-level work. And, and the hope is that at some point you get to the same space in the clinical area where at least some of the stuff, the front-end stuff, Some of the follow-up stuff can be done through AI and technical and digital communications and not through necessarily people. And it's not that we're, I I think in the the long run, we so desperately need enough doctors and nurses. We talk regularly about the horrible math problem our country faces, which is 330 million people in an aging, growing population and only a million 70,000 physicians and only 4 million nurses. And the math just doesn't work in terms of taking care of our population because we only like turn out eighteen to twenty thousand dollars doctors a year. Is how do we sort of bridge some of this gap and at least lead to a little bit less burnout of our physician force, our nurse force, everything else, and a little bit more hands-on patient time, whether it's telephonically or in person or whatever it is. So we see lots of big threads going on, but I don't think I think technology is a is a big part of augmenting our physician and nurse population or provider population. But I think it's a mix of both technology and people that we certainly got to keep on working technology hard to take some of the burden off of our people. That's interesting. So along those lines, it, it, you know, something I kind of just thought of was, you know, I spend a lot of my waking hours thinking about how, how to be consumer centric what does that look like, right? And, and technology allows for a lot of that. It allows for a lot of the DIY components, if you will. Like how do we allow people to schedule online and things like that are pretty easy things to point to. Is it fair to say that being consumer centric is also advantageous for our uh, kind of internal strategies of reducing burnout? Probably. The more that the consumer can do themselves... And the more that we're able to make it easier for the consumer to do certain things themselves, the better off we should be. You know, so for example, if if a consumer can follow up and figure out how to schedule their appointment without so much human manpower or woman power, whatever it is, if a consumer can sort of like, you know, even for example, now, and this is the challenge of a little bit of our reimbursement system, but if I could message my physician and say, I've got this issue can I get a refill of that prescription or is there a different prescription that would work? And the physician could actually think about it enough. So it's not just responding, but actually thinking about it thoughtfully and not missing, oh, it might be something totally different for this patient. You know, have I thought about this and that? Then you get to a spot where a lot of things can be taken off of the physician's calendar or the nurse's calendar and, and, and you know, make it a little bit easier to provide the care that's needed 
without so much stress and burden on the providers. I think the more you make it consumer centric, the more it's easier for the consumers to use. You know, there's this great question of this next level consumer centric. We all know that if our consumers move towards, if everybody lost, you know, I mean, on average, no offense to anybody individually, 10 pounds, 15 pounds a piece, we would be in a much better shape in terms of metabolic illness, cardiovascular illness, structural problems, all kinds of issues. You know, and that's consumer centric preventive health, but who knows if we'll ever get there? Who knows? There's all kinds of issues with it. But yes, I buy into the concept that the more we're easy to use, probably the more we improve healthcare. And with luck, it takes some of the burdens off of nurses, doctors, everyone else. You know, in the old days, I was a lawyer to begin with in my life. I was a media publisher sending out print magazines. There's still people that love print magazines, so I don't want to make a, a, a bad joke about print magazines. But you know, if if I could take care of a client by talking to her or him on the phone or the company on the phone versus running to Tulsa to go visit with them or wherever it is, a lot of that just makes life a little bit less burnout, a little bit easier. You know, So the more that we can make this consumer-centric and it works for the patient, the better off we probably are. Do you think we're ready for that? I mean, I know we want to be consumer-centric and provide all these uh, innovative ways that people can engage us and talk to us. And I think the assumption is, and even antidotally, you know, talking to consumers, they, they do want these things. We talk about different generational impacts and things like that. But are we ready for that as a system? You talk about like rev cycle, so the reimbursement piece of it, or even the compliance GR rev cycle, like all these other kind of things that it impacts. Are we there? Yeah, I think it's going to be a work in process. If you looked at this, and you're obviously more of an expert on a lot of this than I am, when we started towards EMRs now, I don't know if it was 20 years ago or what exactly, how long it was. It seems like a long time ago now. You know, it was a process. It was a process for years. There were people that said that it came in all shapes. You had 10% of the people that were ready for EMRs right away, 70, 80% of, I'm talking about providers here versus patients. There were 70, 80% of providers waiting to see. And there were probably 10, 20% of providers. And I know I've gone over 100%. They're almost like in Yogi Berra fashion, but there were probably 10, 20% of providers that said, I'm never using that EMR thing. Now, 10, 20 years later, we know we couldn't survive as a health system or provide good care without EMRs. I mean, you'd always have to be shipping records from place to place and copying. I mean, we know we couldn't do it. We've seen tremendous progress in some administrative areas. We'll see a lot in some other areas. I think we'll see a lot in clinical areas, but it will be a transition over 10, 20 years to where we really see it make a difference and be great. I mean, you know, telehealth is fantastic, but it's very different. When my 85 and 89-year-old parents get on telehealth, my mom is extremely sharp. They still have the problem of half the time the doctor's really paying attention, half the time they're not, because they're not really sitting with them and dealing with them in the same way. So I think a lot of these things will be, you know, an evolution. And we've got to sort of trust but verify, keep on investing in AI and technology and so forth. But we need to have enough doctors, nurses, ERs, everything else to make sure that we still got a place to take care of patients while we're going through this transition. Not that we'll, not that we won't always need those things, but we won't need them in the same numbers if we actually get great at this from an AI and technology standpoint. What are we missing? I, you know, when you just said that, I thought of a of a comment that a physician, chief medical officer, physician friend of mine, has said around the evolution of medical education, of educating our physicians. Moving, you talked a lot about bedside manner. Well, now we're talking about web side manner, right? When we're talking about this virtual care and things like that, and the need to evolve the way that we train physicians to take into account all this technology, but certainly the virtual care and pieces like that. So past this idea of, well, we need to train our clinicians a little bit differently. Are there things that are top of mind for you that still need to evolve as it relates to, you know, what the consumer's expectation is of us? Yeah, so there's there's multiple different threads that I'll touch on very quickly. And and it the consumer, the just in time concept that we used for inventory until the pandemic, and also medical education. I'll touch on that too. So medical education, aside from everybody to teach it virtually, medical education produces great physicians, great nurses, but it does so in a method that was developed prior to the internet. So for example, we've got a kid going to med school now. She'll be there for four years of med school, four years of residency. I mean, it's literally insane because there's so much memory involved in it 
because it was all developed prior to the internet. So the medical education system in other countries, they could produce doctors, med school and residency five, six years versus the, the eight to 10 years that we're doing here now. So it's literally insane given the shortage of doctors and the cost is cost the costs are to send somebody to med school. So the med school system, aside from the point that you made, which is they have to teach how to practice in a way that's different than they did 50 years ago, the whole med school curriculum and how it's done needs to be somewhat reevaluated, shortened, made better, just because so much today is available at people's fingertips that wasn't 100 years ago or 50 years when med school, as it is today, was developed. So that's one issue. The second thing is, in terms of the consumer, the concept of the consumer is it, it's a mix of what they're ready for it. And it depends a lot, just like physicians being ready for the EMRs, consumers are all, all over the board on it. Like my mother is very technologically savvy at 85, 86. She's ready for it. But half the time, the digital engagements are not how they should be yet. And so it ends up back in the emergency room because somebody doesn't get something quite right. And a lot of our experience, the beauty of healthcare is every single one of us is a consumer as well as people like you being in a health system, people like me being an observer every day of the health system, but all of us are consumers. So we see all the things we talk about. We know our works in process, I think, because we all see like this went great at this system. This didn't go as well as it should at that system. We're thrilled with this system for the most tertiary, most difficult care, but the navigation of the patient at that system is horrible. So we're going to go to this community hospital for that. I mean, it's all... But, you know, we're all consumers, so we all see it. And are, are the consumers ready for it? It's probably a great mix out there, a continuum. And then the third thing I'll touch on that's in line with this thread is, you know, everybody moved towards pre-COVID, just-in-time everything, because people didn't want to hold more inventory than they needed, more supplies than they needed, more staff than they needed, more everything. And what we've all found is in any system that we work in, just like in the computer system, technology, so you need some resilience and redundancy. In any human system, any supply system, anywhere, we also need some some slack in the system, some capacity. You know, the, the, the easiest way to get burnout of nurses is not having enough nurses. It's guaranteed to have burnout if you're putting too much work over too few people. It's very fair I, to think that it's I'm probably not quite this true, but if you've talked to one consumer, you've talked to one consumer. I do feel like there are things that people want there are people there are things that people think that they want and you know are just not you know the jury's still out right until we get a little further down this track and see is this really the way that they want to receive care you know in a virtual environment i think it is uh, and depending on the level of acuity and some of those types of things but we'll see we'll see question for you, for those that are listening, what are some of the conversations they need to be having in the industry, whether it's inside their organization, whether it's conversations across the industry or other parts of the industry? Are there, are there, are there people they need to be talking to, not by name per se, but types of people they need to be engaging with that maybe they haven't historically? How do they need to be thinking about what they do? No, I think it's a great question. I, c- I come back to so much. We've got this horrendous supply and demand problem in healthcare, not even to start to get into how efficiently we deliver we deliver healthcare, but we've got this horrendous supply and demand situation where the demand for services is growing dramatically and the population is growing dramatically and it's aging dramatically. And at the same time, the extent to which we're producing doctors, nurses, and even keeping retaining doctors and nurses is, is moving not nearly at that pace that we're growing population. So that's a mismatch and a problem. Then you look at, you know, how many technological solutions can we evolve and try and, and, and work with to try and reduce, to make things more automated, to try and make it more efficient so there's a little bit less burden on the doctors and nurses. And, and I sort of view it as a constant twofold effort. We constantly use this phrase that things aren't binary. They're technology plus people. You know, I look at sort of like the, you know, the grocery stores, the banks are in a billion times better condition than they otherwise would be because they automated so many services over the years that otherwise would have had, had to have people there. You know, so now 15 of us are checking out and there's one or two people there. There's just 15 people there. You know, if you remember, there's a billion bank branches. There used to not really be ATMs. There was there was a billion different towers and the towers you know, and it was exhausting. It was another piece of life that was exhausting. And the more that we could figure out 
how we automate different things. And some of them are more challenging clinically than the things are administratively, but it's sort of, it's going to be this constant focus on really improving technologically and, and seeing and testing. A lot of it's going to be trial and error to see. I wish we were all smart enough to say, if we just did that, we'd be so much better off. I mean, you and I probably think somehow or another, they ought to be able to produce a machine that does 97% of what an anesthesiologist does. And I don't mean that as a negative to anesthesiologists and CRNAs, but there's this incredible shortage of them as we've developed more places of care. An incredibly shortage. People are paying more for anesthesia and CRNAs than they've ever paid. A starting CRNA in our area might get $250,000, $300,000 now, and God bless them. They deserve it. There's a huge shortage. But there ought to be things that are more susceptible to, to automation. Certainly radiology was the sort of the forerunner of telehealth. And you know, because your company is in multiple different markets, some of which are harder or easier to staff. But the reason why teleradiology really took off when it did a long time ago now was we just couldn't get radiologists to smaller markets. You just couldn't do it in some small markets. You just There just wasn't people. And so necessity was the you know caused invention. And I do think it's a mix. My, my core thought on all this stuff, it's not binary. It's not value-based versus free-for-service. It's not technology or people. It's somewhere in between and some mix of both that we got to keep on getting better at. Well said. Well said. Well, Scott, thanks. I certainly appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for chatting a little bit. Thanks for, for having us at the at the conferences over the years. It's a great resource for the industry. We'll certainly link to the website and to, to the events and, and all the things that you've got coming up. But but so glad that you're a resource and, and kind of doing what you're doing and uh, appreciate the opportunity to have you on. Reed, thank you. Always brilliant to visit with you. It was fantastic having you on a panel recently. Brilliant perspective. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to visit with you. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Special thanks to Scott for coming on the show. I know he's a busy guy. I appreciate his time and insights and look forward to, to having him back on soon. A couple quick plugs. Touchpoint.health is the website. Again, we mentioned it earlier in the show, but the TPS report you can sign up for there has a link to our end of year survey. We'd certainly appreciate that. And I mean, quite honestly, reach out to us. LinkedIn uh, is probably the best way to do that. Let us know uh, what you think. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. Rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff couple of recommendations and we'll uh, we'll call it a week. Uh, Chris, what do you got today? Reed, I never thought I'm going to recommend something like this, but here I am. You know, I'm a digital guy and I have the largest size iPhone that's out there in terms of memory. And I take hundreds of pictures of my little boy every day, it seems like. So all my stuff, my videos, my photos, all that is all online through Apple. We do all the things where we do like shared albums with family members and stuff like that. If you have to be on iPhone to to get actually access to them, but you know, all of that other stuff. But what I'm going to recommend today is a growing need that I never thought I would need a way to print your photos. (laughs) Here you go. (laughs) Printing. Now we're printing them. And I'm not talking about giving it to a laser printer or what have you. Right. I'm talking about like getting good quality prints for your photographs because we're doing now things like, you know, like little crafts and, other things where we want to send along photos, maybe even cards with photos in them to relatives and things like that. So now we're in the need to print photographs. And I have to say, I had a really great experience um, over the last couple of weeks, had to do a, quite a number of uh, different photographs to be printed. You can get photo, photographs done printed virtually anywhere. Walgreens is amazingly a really great service to get your photos yeah. printed. I have a Walgreens card, so I'm a member, you know, I'm a, I guess I'm a member, you know, for buying products or what have you. But their website is really straightforward when you want to get prints made. And they're so easy. I would actually go and order prints and be able to pick them up, like order them from my house and pick them up on my way to the next store I'm going to, because they get them printed in like 10 minutes. 
It's so quick and so easy to do. In terms of what I'm going to recommend today is if you need to have your digital photos printed into a standard hard copy photo, use a service like Walgreens or others. I'm sure others are also great, whatever's convenient to you in your neighborhood. It's just so convenient. And the quality of the photos are pretty high standards. So that's my recommendation, Reed. Uh, if you need to make some printouts, go get them printed out at your local you know, pharmacy or wherever your local service could be to get your photos taken. It's really great. And now I have hard copy photos. Yeah, it's pretty wild, right? Like, you know, the technology and, and quality has just gotten so good with everything in life, right? So, you know, why not, you know, getting your pictures printed at Walmart so or Walgreens or CVS or whatever's close to your house. Those are pretty good services, right? Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to recommend um, Tis the Season, I guess. As we kind of get into Christmas time frame, you know, everybody's got movies they like to watch. Common ones you're going to hear come up like Elf, Christmas Vacation, even the ones like Die Hard, you know, that people like to point to or whatever are all great. But I would recommend Four Christmases. Have you, have you seen this? Do you know which one I I'm talking haven't. about? No. Yeah. Four Christmases, uh, Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon are the two kind of stars, if you will. And um, concept is, is is they're skipping out on Christmas and things go awry and they end up having to go to four Christmases instead. It's just, Vince Vaughn cracks me up, number one. Uh, But anyway, it's just a really, really funny movie. Um, And so it's always one of my favorites. And so we watched it... uh, the other night and so anyway it's just kind of top of mind and I'm just gonna throw that out there so that's um, great for christmases yep it's on several of the streaming services right now i believe i'm sure my wife will make sure to add that to our list of christmas shows to watch there you go. i love it well folks again thanks so much for listening touchpoint.health is the website sign up for the tps report and i would love uh, some survey feedback there as well reach out let us know how things are going let us know what's up in your world Uh, we'd certainly appreciate feedback and love to hear from you tell a neighbor tell a friend and uh, for Chris Boyer I'm Reed Smith and we'll see you next week this has been a Touchpoint Media production to learn more about this show and others like it please visit us online at touchpoint.health